This is Startup Renegades, a raw conversation with founders, entrepreneurs, and the unicorns among us who have taken their idea and turned it into a thriving, profitable brand. I'm your host, Shauna Armitage, and my work as a fractional marketing director has led me to connect with dozens and dozens of founders in all stages of their startup journeys. Whether they're bootstrapping or fundraising or have capital on hand, there's one big question founders always ask, how do I grow this thing? On Startup Renegades, we'll explore how they did it, and you'll walk away with actionable steps you can take on your own journey to scalable growth. Today's guest is Priyanka Murthy. She's an attorney, designer, mother, and Forbes Next 1000. She's the eldest daughter of two immigrant entrepreneurs, and her parents started four businesses, three of which failed, and one, a small jewelry wholesale business, which worked out. Now, Priyanka went to school and got into the profession of law, and while she practiced that, she started a side hustle when she realized that the jewelry industry is dated and ripe for disruption. She shares a lot about that, and I love how she explains it, and it really talks to how deeply she understands her customer and why this business is is so needed right now. So that side hustle became a full-time foray into entrepreneurship. She first launched her own designs and then concurrently launched a technology-enabled, personalized, try-before-you-buy fine jewelry service, which today is called Array. Priyanka shares all about her journey with Array and the specific growth strategies that she's used specifically around influencers and community building and organic marketing to really get the company up and moving it and taking it from zero to scale. So let's dive right in and listen to Priyanka tell the story of Array. Hey, Priyanka, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Shauna. I'm so excited. Let's dive right in. Tell me about kind of where you started. What did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be the Secretary of State of the United States. I love it. (laughs) Because I was not born in the U.S., so I couldn't be president. So I thought the next best thing was Secretary of State. That is an awesome aspiration. I dig it. So what did you go to college for? Because I don't think you have yet been the Secretary of State. So where did your career trajectory actually take you? Yeah, the night is still young. I might still be Secretary. That is true. That is true. <laughs> but if I'm not, I did have a backup plan. So I went to Northwestern for undergrad and law school. And I was a communications and journalism major at Northwestern. And then I wanted to be a lawyer. I am a lawyer still. I wanted to be a lawyer after finishing college. I worked for two years, was a Fulbright scholar for another year, and then went to law school. That's awesome. So how do you go from law school to startup founder? You're actually not the first person that I've met with that has made that transition. But I feel like law is one of those, in some ways, it's a sexy profession. And you know how you go from that to really digging in and making big sacrifices and going all in on your idea. I'm always curious how you get from point A to you know, point purple? Yes. Um, That's a really good question. So let's see. It's interesting because between undergrad and law school, 
I was in a time when I made that, when I was going from undergrad to law school, not as many people took time off in between. People usually went straight through. But I got some really good advice from some mentors who said, take some time off. First of all, it'll help you get into a great law school. And second, it'll definitively kind of tell you what you want to do. So in the time that I had off, I worked in business and operations management for two years, simply to just earn money and, you know, be in the workforce. And then I went on to get a Fulbright. The two things that that did was it allowed me to, first of all, like get real world experience. And second, it helped me kind of try out different careers. So the operations management was my foray into business. And what I learned was that I really liked the sort of like making things happen of business rather than just like the cerebralness of academia, which was what I did as a Fulbright scholar. You know, I did research and I wrote a thesis and I still, by the end of my three years of non-college pre-law school experience, what I solidified was I needed something where it was cerebral, but at the same time, there was a kind of like a end goal. And so law school still fit because being a lawyer First of all, it's questionable whether or not that's sexy. I know there's a lot of TV shows about it, but the, you know, first couple couple of years of being a lawyer is anything but, but so is entrepreneurship is anything but too. It's always the result that's always sexier, you know, like the winning the case and like selling your company. Those are the things that are more sexy than the actual work that goes into it. But I digress. But yeah, so went to law school. I was a very, very strong law student. And so somewhere along the way, I kind of became what you would say, like gold star super lawyer. You know, I was an editor on the law review and I worked for several federal judges. And as I sort of went through the rose up in the profession, it was a grind and I wasn't really able to get the other portion of what I thought that I was going to get, which is like building something, making something happen. Instead, I was mainly just solving a lot of problems daily. And nobody was really happy. (laughs) The clients were not always happy because no matter how much money we saved them or got for them, there was always a conflict. On the other hand, with business, I saw that it was like building, it was actually building something. And I was watching my parents who are now retired, but they had a small wholesale jewelry business. And so I was watching them and like the internet was happening and people were going online. And I was like, wow, this industry is so fragmented. There's a lot there and it's super interesting. Women are the ones who majorly wear the jewelry. Majority of jewelry sales are to women, but the industry itself is totally designed by and for men. I mean, even the jewelry makers are men. The sales folks are men. Even the experience of a jewelry store, it looks, most jewelry stores, independent ones look like Capitol Grill, whereas women don't want to shop like that. So that's where I had sort of like the aha moment from the subject matter standpoint. And then from the, what is Priyanka good at? What does she want to do? I wanted to build something. And so that's where they sort of my worlds collided. And I was like, okay, I would like to build a better way to shop for fine jewelry. And frankly, something that puts women at the center of the purchasing experience. Wow. I love everything about that. It's all so true. So you have this problem that you're going to solve clearly. Mm -hmm. 
What was the first thing that you did? It sounds like the jewelry business was in your blood a little bit. You had the family history of that. So it wasn't completely new to you, but you're making a big switch. So did you start designing jewelry? Did you put up a website? Did you do like market research? Where did you go first? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think it's really important to kind of think about how one wants to start something, right? And what your bandwidth is and what can you do. So at the time when I was practicing law and my husband, who is now a full-fledged physician, was in training. So I was the primary breadwinner. It was impossible for me to sort of take the risk and just stop earning the income that I was earning as an attorney and just switch to a business. I think the success or failure or sort of stagnation of a business has more to do with the space that the founder is in than mm. even more like external factors like product market fit. I would even argue to say that, right? So in my situation, the way I thought about it is I need to stay at my current position so that I can secure myself and be in a different spot. But I could have either sort of not done anything until I was financially ready to start my own business, or I could take little, as I say, like little, little steps. And I chose the latter, and I was sort of methodical about those steps. So the first thing I did was, as you mentioned, I designed some jewelry. This is where I got some help because of my parents' contacts. That alone is a hard thing to do is to find the right manufacturer, et cetera. And I designed 12 pieces. And what I did was I tried to sell them. And then when I sold those 12 pieces, I earned some customers. Instead of trying to sell them more jewelry the same way, what I started doing was saying to them, okay, I'm going to make a couple more pieces of jewelry. I don't want you to buy them from me. Instead, what I want to do is send you the jewelry to your home. By that time, I trusted the customers. They had paid me. Send the jewelry to your home. Try it on for a few days and tell me what you think. Because I was testing a hypothesis that part of sort of disrupting the experience of fine jewelry the way it is now, where it was when I was starting, is to see if women can have the time and space. Part of it is, you know, the pressure of going to a jewelry store. So my solution that I wanted to test was, what if we can do a try before you buy service? What if we can send jewelry to people's homes and let them have some time with it? Jewelry is not like buying a t-shirt. It is a more expensive purchase and it's a more considered purchase. But what if we can sort of reduce those barriers, the pressure of shopping in a store? So that's what I did. Instead of trying to resell the jewelry in the same way to these people, I asked them, And nobody said no to me. Everybody said, yeah, sure, send me. So I had 10 customers who got a box of jewelry in their house and they got to try it on. I just came up with an arbitrary time, which was seven days. Try it on for seven days. And you'd be amazed at how many people ended up buying the jewelry in their box and spending more than what they did the first time when they just bought jewelry outright at a trunk show from me. I was able to do that on the side. I was able to do it very sort of scrappily. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't have a website, I didn't have a brand, I didn't have anything. So once I got that, then I started researching the market and like figuring out who else is doing this? Is someone doing this? What are the pitfalls? Frankly, Shauna, it is not easy logistically to run a try before you buy fine jewelry business. Oh, I can't imagine. Yeah, there's a lot of hurdles. But so then I started figuring that out. And this is where the lawyer 
sort of way of training, you know, essentially lawyers are, if they're fairly well trained, they're like engineers and scientists, they have to sort of experiment and try things and analyze. So that's what I started doing when it came to the market. Once I was able to understand like where the opportunity lies and where the sort of pitfalls could be, that's when I started developing a real business plan and like, could this scale, could it work, et cetera. That took like, you know, one or two years. And by that time, I was in a position where I was able to quit my quote unquote day job. <laughs> so it's funny, I want to say that uh, law is still my side hustle. So I'm always <laughs> a lawyer, you know, so I, I have one client. So that's always there because I love the law. I just love business more. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so around that time when I finished with the business plan is also where my family and I were secure enough where I could take that risk. My husband was finally finished with his, you know, gazillion years of medical training, and I could take that risk and and do this. Hey, it's Shauna here. I want to take a quick break from this amazing episode to send a free resource your way. Starting up is hard. Whether you're bootstrapping or you've got some funding behind you, you don't always know exactly where to start. I want to fix that. You head to startuprenegades.com right now. You can claim your free business benchmark blueprint. That's a mouthful. It's going to help you set a plan in place so you can create your foundation for growth. And it's free, so why not? Head to startuprenegades.com right now and grab yours. Well, that's the perfect segue, right? Because you're talking about scaling now. And you've already explained to me how you got your first customers, how you tested this idea. So running something like this has its logistic challenges. Let's talk about the challenges with scaling it. What were some of the first things that you did in terms of growth? So the first thing was like test to see this could happen. The other thing was really trying to get the designers and makers on board my business is such where we don't necessarily hold all the inventory. We have makers who we work with who provide us the inventory, but I had to really sell this idea to them as to how this could work. Why would you, a really, really talented maker, provide us with, there is jewelry that we personally design and make in-house. And then there's jewelry that we design, but it's made by other folks and they are taking a chance on us. So I had to kind of explain to them why why it would it's going to work to send jewelry to folks in their home and et cetera. And I had some proof of it. So getting them on board was really, really important. So when you're doing something disruptive, you're always vacillating between being an outsider and an insider. I had to go to the inside and talk to the people who are entrenched in the jewelry industry to get them on board. But I also had to be the outsider to question why something, as a lawyer, not someone who's been in the jewelry industry her whole life, to question why it can't be done differently. So I had to get them on board first. Then I had to talk to the insurance companies and explain to them why this they should insure me. And frankly, in the beginning, I paid way more than I think I should have simply to for them to take a chance on us, right? So they're not the sexy parts of the business, but those were the two sort of logistical things that I had to get 
sort of teed up before I could even launch the company. That's sort of like the big thing that I had to do. Yeah. So let's talk about marketing and growth. So you've got all that logistical stuff that you had to figure out and now you're ready to scale. So what strategies were you using to scale this kind of business? So what I thought to myself was, I know that I'm solving a problem, but it's not a problem for every single person in the United States. The need to look put together the kind of client who is going to invest in fine jewelry, you know, it's not everybody that you meet. So we really clearly defined who our client is. And the good news was that I already knew her because she was me and she was a lot of my friends and colleagues. While we were trying to get, in, get buy-in, we're getting buy-in from the industry, we were sort of serving and figuring out and just getting customers, basically. Getting customers and figuring out who, we knew who for whom this would resonate, but we had to test it out. And what we learned is, overwhelmingly, we tested the hypothesis, of what we learned is that overwhelmingly, our clients are professional women who buy fine jewelry for themselves. And they buy fine jewelry for three main reasons. One, they're at this, I've, we heard this over and over again. I'm at this stage in my life where I really have to look put together. I've either made partner at my law firm. I am an attending at my hospital. I'm in a upper management position where I'm dealing with people all the time. And I, part of who I present at work is needing to look put together. And I simply cannot wear jewelry that I buy from, you know, Claire's or Target anymore. I'm of a certain stature. That's one. Second is, it's kind of part and parcel of it. Women who are achieving certain milestones in their life, and they want to note it. It is that promotion. A couple of very, very like on the ground things we did is, we started sponsoring, attending, and like partnering with professional groups associations like medical associations, female lawyer associations, executive coaches with big followings. We started partnering with them to be able to get awareness in front of those women. Uh, We had a like a spreadsheet of scores and hundreds of organizations and we would sort of find folks in there who would be our allies and reach out to them instead of gifting influencers like the traditional ones that you see on you know like um, who are fashion folks on Instagram etc we went ahead and found influencers in these spaces who had large social media whether it's Instagram or LinkedIn audiences and we did stuff with them on causes and things that they cared about. So we sponsored their charity event. We donated jewelry to their silent auction. We set up like Instagram lives with, you know, sponsoring and doing giveaways with them on certain issues like Heart Health Month. And so what that did was it's got us in front of the exact micro audience that we wanted to get in front of. That's awesome. I love that strategy. So you're talking about these very specific, you know, people that you were looking for. How did you measure success? Because it sounds like an amazing strategy, but I think a lot of people are using similar ones and not seeing results from it. Yeah. So what we 
chose, we had to decide when we were to do something. And the way we sort of bifurcated is if something, if we could do something for free, right, where we didn't have to expend any money in it, we were going to be more generous or more lax in the sort of result that we get. We just get ourselves out there. Whereas anything where we had to spend money, whether it's the cost of a piece of jewelry that we have to give away or the cost of a sponsorship, there had to, had to, had to, and I recommend this for anybody, there has to be a way in which you get some data, okay? And by data, I mean literally an email. So if I did a giveaway with, say, a medical association, I would have to have them send out an email blast and have the customers give us their email by entering our giveaway. Now, we had a quote-unquote sexy product, which is, you know, jewelry, diamonds. We had a a pretty high opt-in when it comes to people taking our, you know, like filling out our form and giving us our email, but it was a requirement. The other thing I made sure to do is in the beginning, before collaborating with someone, I would just straight ask, what is your list size of your email list? And what do you think is successful? What percentage do you think of your list should be opting into this and giving us their email? I would do that at the outset, Mm. ask that, because then it becomes clear what is success for them versus us. And we can decide at that. So if they say, you know what, 25%, I personally think that's a very high. I like it because I compare it to my email performance, right? Email clicks, et cetera. So there's a, so 25%, yeah, I'll do it depending on what the list size is, right? Uh, And at the end of the giveaway, it's very easy to measure. And at times, you know, we've had some great partners where even if they didn't hit that mark, they themselves out of just pride of what they're doing saying, listen, it didn't go well this time. Let me try this and let me do this and let me do that. So that was a really good way of measuring and you can actually track it back, right? So if I'm spending X dollars and I get X amount of emails, I can actually do a cost per email sort of comparison, right? Right. Versus like, there are a lot of companies that go out there and sell uh, lists. Those are terrible. I really do not recommend anyone doing that. First of all, you're violating spam laws by doing that. Secondly, they're never vetted. They can say, oh yeah, a list of X people with this household income in this part of the country, but it's never true. I compared it to how much it would cost me per name on that list versus on the generic list versus this. And I always came out on top. Yeah. And it sounds like you've gone the extra mile to really build a relationship with these influencers or organizations that you're working with to the point where they're like, hey, that didn't go the way that I wanted it to. What can I do to make this successful for you? Where it's not like, oh, it's $500 for a post, right? Like, no, no, no. They actually care. And that is so valuable. It it really, it really is invaluable for your business. So tell me what's going on with Hey Ray right now. So you had mentioned scaling, right? Mm -hmm. So what we did was, it's interesting, and this is a sort of something that your listeners, if they haven't felt it themselves, they should hear how other founders feel. Every day you make decisions and you make a decision, but it doesn't mean that you're 100% confident that it's the right one, but you choose a side and you kind of do it. So when this idea for my try before you buy fine jewelry service came to be, The business is at the intersection of two things, a luxury brand and a tech company. But the playbook for a luxury brand and a tech company can be very different. So the traditional tech company playbook is put a little bit of something out there and then iterate and go back out there. 
and then put a little bit more out there and iterate and go back out there. It doesn't have to be beautiful. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just do it. Whereas the playbook for the launch of a luxury brand is do it in a really kind of big, beautiful, thoughtfully branded way. I, launching Access 79, the way when we launched Access 79, it was taking the playbook from tech which is we didn't have a beautiful, amazing brand. We didn't spend so much money on imagery and content and things like that, but we got it out there and we got a critical mass of customers. We got product market fit. We were scrappy. And then once we kind of got all of that in a row, we also got to learn all about our customer and we really kind of crowdsourced what the brand ought to be. And one of the feedback that we got was, and it was also my own opinion, which is everyone was not loving the name Access 79. So we did a rebrand and we're just finishing up the rebrand. So the timing here is great. So we have gone from Access 79 to Array. And now we have this beautiful brand with a very strong point of view, with a active customer base. And so now I would say we are in like phase three of scaling our company. I love that so much. Thank you. So can you tell everybody listening today what being a startup renegade means to you? First of all, I have to say, I love the idea of being a renegade. (laughs) It's great. I mean, I feel like it suits me so well (laughs) because I think being a renegade means looking at something that other people are looking at, but seeing it differently and actually putting some action behind it. All of us can look at the same, you know, bottle of water and see it look different. You know, like you may see it look like pear-shaped and someone else may see it as looking cylindrical But the renegade part of it is not the actual like, oh, yes, I see things differently. It's actually like taking that and like doing something about it. So to me, that's what being a startup renegade is. It's looking at an. I did not start something from scratch that doesn't exist. I didn't Mm -hmm. do that. I took something that already exists and working on making it better. To me, that is renegade. I love it. Priyanka, thank you so much for being here. Can you tell everybody where they can find you online? Yes, of course. You can find us on heyarray.com or on Instagram at hey.array. And we are also on TikTok, which is hey.array. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you. That was this week's episode of Startup Renegades. Thank you so much for joining me and soaking up all that brilliant entrepreneurial knowledge from today's guest. If you want to suggest a founder for a future episode or just want to connect, you can find me on Instagram at shauna.armitage. That's S-H-A-U-N-A dot A-R-M-I-T-A-G-E. And just a little reminder, if you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. It makes a huge difference and it's so important for helping the show thrive. I'll be here same time next Tuesday for a raw, honest conversation with another startup renegade. Oh, 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 o